Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter of Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to take up the contentious and difficult subject of can one lose one's salvation? Does the section of Scripture, Hebrews 6, 1 through 12, which refers to apostasy, does that apostasy mean losing one's salvation, or does it rather mean leaving the Christian faith for Jewish legalism, for Judaism? Our context is this, in the last part of Hebrews 5, the author exhorted the Hebrew Christians to get off of their milk, quit drinking milk of the word, but start eating solid food of the word. In other words, grow up. And the idea is, look, you need to grow, not apostatize. Don't go back into legalism, but grow up into Christ. And he continues with that theme here in chapter 6. And that theme, of course, runs all the way through the book of Hebrews. Don't apostatize. Don't go back into Judaism. So we start in verse 1, Hebrews 6. Therefore, leaving the elementary message about the Messiah, let us go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works, faith in God, and dot, dot, dot in verse 2, but I'm going to stop here in verse 1. The therefore is therefore for this reason. Since you should be leaving milk and eating solid food, that's from the last part of Hebrews 5, leave that and go on to maturity. Hebrews 5, 13 through 14 says this, Now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, for those whose senses have been trained to distinguish between good and evil. Therefore, since solid food is for the mature, leave the elementary message and go on to the, the mature word, the mature message about the Messiah. Leaving the elementary message, this is how this verse can be summarized according to Adam Clark. Leave the law and come to the gospel, which is, of course, exactly the theme of the book of Hebrews. Let us go into maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance. The foundation means the first principles of Christianity, according to JFB, Jameson Fawcett and Brown. However, some people say these six foundation principles that are going to be listed starting in verse 2 refer to foundational principles found in Judaism, not Christianity. We'll discuss that in just a minute. The NIV has for foundation elementary truths. Now, what are these elementary truths that we're going to see beginning in verse 1 and finishing up in verse 2? Repentance from dead works, faith in God, instructions about baptisms or washings, laying on of hands, number 5, resurrection of the dead, number 6, eternal judgment. Now, notice these six items are listed in three couplets. This will help us keep it straight in our head. Couplet number one, repentance and faith. They kind of go together because that's how you get saved. Let's look at how those two ideas are connected in Scripture. Mark 1, 14 through 15. After John was arrested, Jesus went to Galilee preaching the good news of God. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. So that's how Jesus preached. He, Jesus, our master, says repent and believe. That's how you get saved. Repent and believe in the gospel. So faith, and of course, repent, faith, belief is the same thing as faith. So repentance and faith go together. Repentance, of course, means turning away, according to Bauer, Arndt, Gendricks, and Docker, the famous Greek lexicon. To repent means to turn away from sins. The Greek word is metanoia, which means to change one's mind. You change your mind about sin, you don't want to do it anymore. So that's faith and repentance. Faith means believing in God. Believing in, it's the substance of things not seen. You can't see God, but you believe in him. Covenant number two, baptism and laying on of hands. I will say this, there are many options for laying on of hands that have nothing to do with baptism. We'll ex examine that when we get to the next verse. But if it's referring to laying on of hands when people are baptized in water, well, then they go together. And then the last couplet, couplet number three, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. That obviously goes together because when the dead are raised, as in John 5, we're all going to be judged, the righteous and the unrighteous. 
All right, so let's take one of these foundation principles one at a time. Repentance from dead works. That's the first one. What does dead works mean? Well, the NIV translates that as acts that lead to death. Another way you could look at it is a work that has no effect. It's a dead work because it is not effectual in bringing you to salvation. Either way, or it could be both, actually. It's ineffectual in leading you to salvation, and when you try to use works to get salvation, you end up dead because it doesn't. the works don't work. They end up killing you. So those are your two options. Again, option number one is a work done in vain, a work that doesn't work, a work that doesn't have its effect, a work done in a vain effort to earn one's salvation, a work done in self-righteousness. That's option number one. Option number two is a work of sin that ends in death. Adam Clark mentions that one. Jameson Fawcett Brown mentioned the first option. Romans 6.21 says, So what fruit was produced then from the things you are now ashamed of, for the end, ashamed of? For the end of those things is death. Evil works result in death. All right, so we want to repent from dead works, trying to get saved by keeping the work of the law. And then the second foundational principle is faith in God. That's obvious. We'll go to verse 2. We'll look at the third and fourth foundational principles. Teaching about ritual washings. Other translations like the KGV and the NIV have baptisms. The ESV has washings without the ritual attached as an adjective. The Greek word is baptismos, comes from that Greek word. It's not the word usually used in the New Testament to refer to baptism. The usual word is baptisma. So, now, what are the options as to the reference? There's lots of options. Here's one, the baptisms of John the Baptist as opposed to New Covenant baptism. John the Baptist is baptism. So, Hebrews, please leave the teachings about John the Baptist's baptism. That's elementary. It's not. It's foundational, but it's elementary. It uh, could be. Option number two is referring to baptism of John and New Covenant baptism. In other words, everybody gets baptized when they first get saved, so that's a foundational principle. You need to get beyond that. That's reasonable, I suppose. Option number three, the baptisms referred to here, or the washings, refer to one of the ceremonial washings required by the Mosaic Law. There were many of them. Like uh, Adam Clark actually believes that this is the correct option. Now, the plural form, because remember, it's baptisms, washings, plural, suggests that it's one of the ceremonial washings. And the Homo Christian Study Bible and the ESV actually don't put baptisms as a translation. They put washings. The ESV Study Bible says perhaps the author used the plural to contrast ritual washings, plural, with New Testament baptism. But all of this is assuming we're talking about Jewish stuff that they need to get past, which is reasonable, I guess. But it seems to me that he's talking about Christian basic foundational principles you need to get beyond. There's no way to prove that one way or the other. You can take all of these six things as referring to Jewish beliefs, or you can take them as referring to Christian beliefs. There's nothing to say that it's one or the other. So... Now, if you mix it up and say that the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment is referring to Christian teaching, but the ritual washings is referring to Jewish teaching, then you've got a problem of why does the author switch from Jewish stuff to Christian stuff? Well, here's a possible answer. Maybe the Hebrews were being taught the typological meaning of the washings. Here's a quote from John Gill. The washings, quote, had a doctrine in them to that people, to the Jews, teaching them, the, or to the Jewish Christians, teaching them the cleansing virtue of the blood of Christ and leading them to it to wash in for sin and for uncleanness. But now, since this blood was shed, they were no more to teach nor learn the doctrine of cleansing by the blood of Christ this way. So Gill's idea is the, the Hebrew Christians were taught about Jewish ritual washings tip, as a type of showing what Jesus did. Here's Jameson Fawcett and Brown with a similar quote. The first and most obvious elementary instruction of Jews would be the teaching them 
the typical significance of their own ceremonial law in its Christian fulfillment. All right, so that's one idea. He's talking he's talking about Jewish stuff, types, teaching them the types, and then that the anti-type was Christian stuff, baptism. Well, I'm not going to take a stand on a hill to die for any of those interpretations. Well, I'm still not finished with the options. That was option three, ceremonial Jewish washings. Here's option four, Christian baptism and water. And the most... Commentators take that position, according to Gill. I don't doubt that. I think that's, and, I, and personally, I think that's what it means, teaching about baptisms. But now the next question is, is Christian baptism, why would it be singular? Why would you make it plural? Well, here's some options to answer that problem from John Gill. He could refer to the different persons being baptized, teaching about Christian baptisms. All the, Susie Q was baptized and John Doe was baptized. could refer to the different times of baptism. Uh, bapti- you know, you Hebrew Christians have seen baptisms before and now and after. Or it could refer to the fact that oftentimes there were three immersions in the water. In the name of the Father, immersion number one. In the name of the Son, immersion number two. And in the name of the Holy Spirit, immersion number three. So the plural can be taken care of, I think, with one, one of those ideas. And so let's just take this for the matter of simplicity, and it doesn't really matter, to, to say it's teaching about Christian baptism. I'm going to take the view that all this stuff is basic Christian doctrine that the about-to-apostatize Jews should move on from into maturity. Although I'm perfectly open to the idea it could refer to Jewish stuff, too, that the about-to-apostatize Christian Jews were still holding on to and not leaving to go on to maturity. So, ritual washings is the first. How about the, that's the, excuse me, that's the second of the foundational principles Faith and repentance to God, excuse me, faith and repentance to God and repentance from dead works. Repentance from dead works is number one. Faith in God is number two. Number three is ritual washings. Now, number four is laying on of hands. Now, there's some options for this. There was a requirement in the Mosaic Law for the offeror to place his hand on the animal's heads. That's everywhere. And placing your hand on the head, and that means you, you identify with the animal. So that when the animal is sacrificed, that means you're sacrificed too. It represents substitutionary atonement. Now, of course, this would be taught to Hebrew Christians who are now Christians, and so they don't need to be taught by that right. But, of course, they could be taught the topology of it. All right, so that's option number one. It's referring to a Jewish practice of laying on of hands. Again, every one of these six things can be, six foundational principles can be referred to Judaism if you want to. But here's option number two of the laying on of hands used when setting apart elders. John Gill denies that. Non-Christian Jews, non-Christian Jews did that also when they set apart elders in their Jewish religion they would lay hands on. F.F. Bruce says that it, the word means praying for people to be filled or baptized with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is kind of interesting in the five Pentecostal passages in Acts. Three of them refer to, or three of them have the baptizees. Three of them have hands laid on the baptizees. Not in Acts 2, the original Pentecost, of course, they were in the, and there was no one to lay hands on them. They were in the room, and then down came the Holy Spirit. And then in Acts 10, at Cornelius' house, when Peter was up there preaching, and the, the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles as at the beginning, again, without anybody laying ha- on of hands. But the other three, we see a laying on of hands. For, for example, in Acts 8:17, then Peter and, John, Peter and John laid their hands on them, that's the Samaritans, and they received the Holy Spirit. Laying on of hands, baptizing the Holy Spirit. Acts 9:17, Ananias went and entered the house. He placed his hands on him. This is talking about Paul. 
Ananias went and entered into the house where Paul was staying on the street called Straight. He, Ananias, placed his hands on Paul and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road you were traveling, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. So there's a laying on of hands and being filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 19.6 at Ephesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, I think there were 12 disciples there at Ephesus, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak in other tongues and to prophesy. So Paul laid his hands on these disciples. The Holy Spirit came on them. So they, you know, that's a good option that the doctrine of laying on of hands has to do with being baptized in the Holy Spirit. It could be the laying on of hands could refer to the impartation of spiritual gifts. Like when James says for the elders to lay hands on the sick and they shall be healed. James 5.14, is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So you see, laying on of hands was used in a lot of different contexts. And so it's hard to say what it refers to, except I think that because it's paired with this couplet here, washings and laying on of hands, that kind of gives you an indication that the laying on of hands had something to do with water baptism. Although I must confess, I was not able to find, just now using a brief search of the internet, where laying on of hands is connected with baptism, connected with baptism of the Holy Spirit, but not connected with water baptism that I can see. So anyway, this is all academic. doesn't matter. Whatever it is, it's elementary, and the Hebrew Christians should move on from it. How about the resurrection of the dead? Well, that's pretty fundamental. That's in all the Orthodox Christian creeds. The Jews believe in that too, of course. That Christians will be bodily resurrected is one of the fundamental beliefs of the church. It's in all the foundational creeds. And, of course, this is a foundational doctrine here that the author of Hebrews is talking about. Here's some scriptures, John 5, 28 and 29. Do not be amazed at this because a time is coming when all who are in the graves will hear his voice. People, All who are in the graves means dead bodies. That's, that's what's in a grave, a dead body. They will all hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good things, if they're going to come out, that means they're resurrected. Those who have done good things to the resurrection of life, but those who have done wicked things to the resurrection of judgment. There's your doctrine of resurrection and, e and eternal judgment as well. Philippians 3.21, He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of His glorious body by the power that enables Him to subject everything to Himself. These are good verses to use against hyper-preterist heretics who deny the resurrection of the dead. Now again, resurrection of the dead, that was standard, at least Pharisees, standard teaching of the Pharisees, so that would be not strange for a Jewish Christian to be into that. As a Jew, instead of as a Christian, I'll leave that question open. And finally, the last foundational principle is, is judgment. I just mentioned John 5:29. We raised again to the resurrection of life and those who've done wicked things to the resurrection of judgment. So that's a standard Christian doctrine as well as Jewish. Revelation 20:15, talking about the great white throne judgment, and anyone whose name was not found written in the book of life was thrown into the lake of fire. So judgment is a foundation principle. Now let's just assume, just for the sake of argument, that all these six foundational principles are Christian basic principles. That means that once you have your converts, you need to get them past this. You need to lay, you need to get them you need them to understand these things first, which would be repentance, faith in God, washing, baptism, if assuming that's what it is, laying on of hands, whatever that whatever you think that might be, the resurrection of the dead is obvious and eternal judgment is obvious. They ought to know about these things. And I will tell you this that the resurrection of the dead is not taught very often. I discovered that when I was teaching a teenage Bible study and how many people, one student asked me, are we going to get new bodies? Are Christians going to be resurrected from the dead? And I thought to myself, I thought everybody knew that. Verse 3 in Hebrews 6 says, and we will do this if God permits. 
The question is, is what is the this that the author of Hebrews will do? Well, as Gill and Clark point out, it's very simple. I will give you solid food instead of milk. That's the context here. I'll teach you so that you can move on to maturity if God permits. Now, why would the author say if God permits? Why wouldn't God permit a person to go on to maturity? Well, here's four options as to what he meant. Here's option number one. For some, there would be no advance to maturity in solid food. According to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown, God would not permit some to mature. Why? Because they weren't willing. They weren't willing to eat solid food, so they're not going to mature. We know that some are not going to go on to maturity. We read Hebrews 6, 7, and 8, which is coming up in just a minute. For ground that has drunk the rain that has often fallen on it and that produces vegetation useful to those it is cultivated for receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed and will be burned at the end. So some people, at least, are not going to grow on to maturity. So God would have to permit the author to go on with certain of the Hebrews on the condition that they were willing to eat solid food. That's option number one. Option number two, this is a warning to the Hebrews. Just as God swore that some would not enter into his rest, so some Hebrews might not either. Actually, that's pretty close to option number one, is it not? If God permits, he might not permit some of you, so maybe you better you better be included in the permissible ones by going on to maturity. This is a reflection of humility by the author. It's a realization that spiritual growth is ultimately caused by God. That's another option. He says, if God permits me as your teacher, but he might not permit me as your teacher because I might not be worthy of being your teacher, he might have other means of making you grow into maturity. Well, that's possible. My The way I read it at first was, if God arranges the circumstances to make it possible for the author to teach the Hebrews, maybe he's not going to be around. If God permits, God willing, we say. Whatever it is, the author is willing. If God allows it, he's willing. Again, that shows that, you know, these faith message people say that you name it and claim it and you call things to be that weren't and that kind of nonsense, that new age nonsense. Well, couldn't the author of Hebrews just say, it will be done. I will teach you and bring you on to maturity. No, he says, if God permits, he leaves the future open to God's will. It's something that faith message, name it and claim it, scream it, redeem it, mark it and bark it, blab it and confess it, name it and claim it. Faith message, word of faith, Copenhagenites just will not understand. You have to leave the future open. You cannot control it with your the witchcraft of your tongue. Let's go to verses 4 through 6. And this passage here is one of the most controversial in the whole New Testament. But we'll get through it, God willing. Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. For it is impossible to renew to repentance those who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift, became companions with the Holy Spirit, tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away. Because to their own harm they are crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. Now what's the four there at the beginning of verse 4? It refers back to Hebrews 6, 1. Which says this, Therefore let us leave the elementary teaching about Christ and go on to maturity, dot, dot, dot. For it is impossible to renew dependence those who were once enlightened, dot, 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 dot. And what he's saying is, if you're going to say fixated on foundational milk principles, legalistic apostates already know those principles, so what's the point of going on and talking about other things? It's impossible to renew these apostates to repentance. We'll talk about, again, later what that means. But basically, they're not going to listen. They're not going to repent. So so in Hebrews 6, 1, when he says, let's leave the elementary teachings, he goes to verse 4 and say, it's impossible to renew. Because, let's go into maturity because it's impossible to renew those to, to repentance, 
those who aren't going to go on to maturity, so let's just leave them behind. Forget it. Now we go to the vexed question of who are these people who were once enlightened but have fallen away? As it says in verse 6, they have fallen away. I'm going to give you three options. Before I do so, let me point out that there's a very similar passage to this, just as controversial in Hebrews 10, 26-31. And when you study this, you really ought to study them together. We don't have time to go into Hebrews 10, 26-31, but I will take that passage up when I get there, of course. That passage says this, For if we deliberately sin after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire about to consume the adversaries. If anyone disregards Moses' law, he dies without mercy, based on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think one will deserve who has trampled on the Son of God, regarded as profane the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know the one who has said, Vengeance belongs to me, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That passage is even more eloquent than Hebrews 6. And the, point, and, and the question, of course, is, is he talking about people losing their salvation? Or is he talking about apostate Christians who are still saved but nevertheless suffer punishment? And, of course, that's a big fundamental question. Now, I'm going to give you three options as to who these people that are falling away are. Option one, option two, and option three. Option one is the typical Arminian position. It says this passage, those who have fallen away, that are re-crucifying the Son of God, they once were enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift, but have fallen away. These people are Christians who have lost their salvation and are going to hell. Now, there's a problem with the Arminian position. First of all, the first problem, well, the basic problem, if someone loses his salvation, why can't he get saved again? Because the verse says it is impossible to renew him again to repentance after he's lost his salvation. Why is it impossible to renew an apostate who's lost his salvation to repentance again? Why is that impossible? I mean, God can forgive murderers, can't he? But he can't forgive apostates? That makes absolutely no sense to me. Well, here's a possible Arminian answer, and it's very weak, incredibly weak. An Arminian could say, well, it's impossible for men to renew apostates into salvation, but not impossible for God. But that's not what the verse says. That is really special pleading there. I know a weak argument when I see one, and that's a weak argument. He says it's impossible. He didn't say it's impossible for God to re for men to renew people to repentance. He just said it's impossible, period. That's the most natural reading of the verse. All right, so the Arminian position has a, a problem there uh, because it says that that phrase, impossible to renew him again to repentance, implies that the apostate can't get saved again, and I say, why not? Now, here's another problem that the Arminians have here, is how does one losing one's salvation re-crucify the Son of God? The verse says here, this person falls away, and they are re-crucifying the Son of God and holding him up to contempt. Well, how the Arminians answer that is they say that the apostate is putting Christ to open shame for despising what he did on the cross. So Christ was shamed once when he was crucified, and then the second time he is crucified is when the apostate ignores his salvation, so that crucifies again, puts him up to shame again because the apostate is not believing. That second shaming is metaphorically described as a crucifixion. I submit to you that's very weak, very, very weak. So there's your two problems with the Arminian position. How come they can't be renewed again to salvation, these apostates? And how does an apostate crucify again Christ to salvation, except in a very weak metaphorical sense? All right, so if that one doesn't fly, how about your typical reform position? Again, reform people believe that once you're saved, you're eternally saved, you're not going to lose your salvation. And boy, this sounds like somebody's losing their salvation, does it not? I mean, they've 
tasted the heavenly gift. They've tasted God's word, the powers of the coming age, their companions with the Holy Spirit. And then they've fallen away. Ooh, doesn't it sound like somebody's lost their salvation? Well, we've already seen that if you take it as someone who loses their salvation, there's problem, two big problems with it, as we, as we just pointed out with the Armenian position. But the Reformed position has its own problems, too. And in fact, the problems with these two positions have kept me agnostic on Hebrews 6 for decades until I, find, I think I found the answer, which is option number three, which we'll get to in a minute. But option number two, the typical Reformed positions, that these are non-Christians who never got saved. They were once enlightened, but they never really got saved. So therefore, they didn't lose their salvation because they never were saved to start with. Well, what's the problem with that? Well, first of all, does that really sound like unsaved people? They were once enlightened. They tasted the heavenly gift. They were companions or sharers with the Holy Spirit. Does that really sound like they were not saved? Well, here's the typical Reformed answer. I've gotten this from Steve Ackerson's notes. The word enlightened doesn't mean saved. It comes from fotizo, to shine, to give light. It refers passively to those who have had the light of truth shed upon them. In other words, they were once enlightened. The light shone on their face, lit them up from the outside, but not from the inside. Okay, well, I submit to you, that's weak. Here's another one. They tasted, these apostates tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age. Well, taste doesn't mean they swallowed it. That's what the reform, the typical reform position is. Tasting doesn't mean swallowing. It doesn't mean say. They put it in their mouth and spit it back out. Mm, no, I don't want it. So they came to know it and got a, kind of got a feel for what salvation was, but they spit it back out. Again, I would suggest that's extremely weak. How about the phrase, these apostates became companion with, companions with or sharers of the Holy Spirit? Ooh, matakos is the Greek word, participating in the Holy Spirit. Well, here's a couple of reformed options to handle that little problem. Option number one, they shared with the Holy Spirit by experiencing or by seeing miracles the Holy Spirit had done. They shared in the, Holy, in the power of the Holy Spirit by just watching the miracles but not believing in them. Hebrews 2.4, at the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles and distributions of gifts from the Holy Spirit. And they just watched that. Or they became companions of the Holy Spirit, not in watching miracles, but by being made holy, being separated from God in the same way an unbelieving spouse was. 1 Corinthians 7.14, for the unbelieving husband is set apart for God by the wife. And the unbelieving wife is set apart for God by the husband. Of course, set apart means be made holy. Otherwise, your children would be corrupt, but now they are set apart. They're made holy for God. In other words, these privileged non-Christians were set apart from the rest of non-Christians because they got to see God working, even though they didn't believe it. Now, I think this is exceedingly weak. Here's the one supporter of this reform view, Steve Ackerson, my good friend Steve Ackerson. He says, perhaps it means they had seen the miracles. Perhaps. He had a really perhaps to me. And he also says this, quote, to modern evangelical ears, it certainly sounds that this is referring to someone who's been in dealt with the Holy Spirit, a true believer. You hear, hear. It sure does. It sure sounds like that. And that's why I don't believe the Reformed position. All right, then, if that's the first weakness of the Reformed position, it, it, in, because it sounds like the person that is apostatizing and falling away is a believer, here's problem number two. How does a non-believer who hears the word and then and doesn't believe in that word, how does he re-crucify the Lord? If crucifying the Lord is a metaphorical way of saying, accept the work that Jesus did when becoming crucified, so I accept his salvation on the cross, that means he, he was crucified for me, so I crucified him metaphorically. Well, unsaved, non-accepting people never crucified him the first time because they never believed. 
And thus, if they didn't believe him the first time, how could they never re-crucify him? How could, excuse me, how could they re-crucify him if they never crucified him to start with? But the scripture clearly says here, these apostates re-crucified the Lord. Now, here's a possible reformed answer. Same answer sort of that the Arminians do. They say re-crucifying means to put him to shame. He was put to shame once he was crucified. That's number one. He was put to shame again when arrogant people refused salvation offered by crucifixion. In my humble opinion, that's a very weak argument. I'll give you a stronger argument when I get to option number three. All right, here's problem number three with the Reformed position. Hebrews 6.6. 6. This is the English Standard Version translation. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Well, if they're not started, saved to start with, how do they repent again? That's a problem. Now, the Holman Christian Study Bible translation fudges this problem. They say it's impossible to renew him again to repentance, but it's the same thing. Again, how do you renew, excuse me, it says renew him to repentance, which fudges it a little bit, but the ESV is clear. How do you make him, how do you restore him again to repentance if he wasn't repented to start with? He never repented to begin with because he was never saved. So there's three big problems with the Reformed position, and that's why I don't believe it. Well, if I can't believe there are many positions, I can't believe the Reformed position, what do I do? Well, for years I threw my hands up in frustration, not knowing. But then one day, a brother who grew up down, or didn't grow up from, but lived down the street from me for years, his kids grew up with my kids, and he was a trucking executive. He was not a theologian, but he came and explained this thing to me so good. I said, my gosh, this is the answer, but nobody's ever heard of you. And years later, I was reading a book on Reformed Doctrine of Predestination by um, R.C. Sproul, and R.C. Proulx gave exactly the same explanation of this verse that my friend down the street did. So this is option number three. Option number three states that these apostates were Christians. They were born again, just like the Armenians said, but they were not going to hell. They were backsliding back into Jewish legalism, back into Judaism. Not falling away into hell, but falling away into Judaism. And of course, this would be an implicit rebuke of rebaptizing backslidden Christians because it's impossible to renew them again to repentance. Why? Because they're already saved. You can't get people saved that are already saved. You can't renew them to repentance if they already renewed to repentance. Now, what are the strengths of this position? It avoids the false Arminian position, proposition that a believer can get unsaved because the falling away is not to hell, but rather to legalism, Judaism. To say that a believer can get unsaved makes about as much sense to me as saying a son upon committing murder ceases to be the son of his father. That's not the case. Next strength of this position is it avoids the Arminian position that backslidden Christians can never get saved again. Why can't? It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Well, why can't they? They can't get saved again. But this position says it's impossible to renew them again to repentance because they're already saved. So what are you trying to get them saved again for, Hebrew Christians? That makes much more sense. The third strength of the position, it avoids the reformed grasping of straws and sucking air and describing companions of the Holy Spirit as non-Christian. I never have bought that. Fourth strength, the fourth strength of this position, of the Sproul position, it makes sense of re-crucifying the Son of God. It fits a backsliding into Jewish legalism Christian who insists on using the law to get saved again every time he thinks he's lost his salvation. Every time he uses the law for self-righteousness or for works righteousness, he re-crucifies Jesus. Jesus has already made him holy at his salvation. And if a believer thinks he's lost his salvation and has to turn back to Jesus and say, please forgive me again, I've done another good work. Well, the second and the third time, etc., that he goes back to Jesus, he's 
mistakenly partaking of Jesus' salvation work on the cross again and again and again, re-crucifying the Lord Jesus by trying to get saved again by doing good works. That makes much more sense to me than just saying, well, you re-crucify him because he was crucified once in Jerusalem in AD 30, and then you re-crucify him again when you shame him by not believing him in him, as the Reformed people say. And the Armenians say you re-crucify him because he died in AD 30. That's the first time. And the second time is you shame him by falling away. Well, shaming is not really re-crucifying, but trying to get saved again by doing the works of the law, that is re-crucifying him. It directly relates to Jesus' salvation work on the cross. So that's the fourth strength of the sprule position. Option number three, here's the fifth strength. strength. It fits the context of the whole book perfectly. The falling away the author was writing about was falling away into Jewish legalism, as I've emphasized over and over again through the first five chapters of the book of Hebrews. Every commentator knows that that's what the context of the book is about. The context of the book was not about falling away from salvation, as the Arminians say. It was not about refusing to accept the gospel, as the Reformed say. These apostates were. The Arminians say the apostates were falling away from salvation. Oh, no, that has nothing to do with the context of the book. The Reformed people say the apostates were people who had tasted of the good word but then refused to accept it. And that's not what the context of the book is about. The context of the book is about falling away into legalism. And that's option number three fits that perfectly. Here's the sixth advantage of this position. The Sproul option has a good explanation for the phrase, it is impossible to restore them again to repentance. He's already saved, so why are you trying to get him saved again? You're looking at a weak Christian, a legalistic Christian. He's about to apostatize. He's about to go back into Judaism. Quit trying to get him saved again. Quit trying to go over these elementary principles of the faith, faith and repentance to God. You've already got him saved, so you're wasting your time renewing him again to repentance. Now let's look under the aspect of option number three, the Sproul option. What does re-crucify mean? It is impossible that they, uh, these people who apostatize re-crucify Christ. They are Christians. They're believers. They're about to backslide into Judaism. How do they re-crucify Christ again? Well, one option is to say that they put Christ to open shame for despising what he did on the cross. Christ was shamed once when he was crucified in AD 30. Then he's shamed twice when legalistic backslidden Christians ignore the rest of the gospel that Jesus provided for them. So the second shaman is metaphorically described as a crucifixion. You're crucifying him again, putting him to shame because you're you're ignoring the salvation work he did on the cross. Again, that's the, that's very similar to the other two positions, the Armenian reform position, that say that the crucifixion is a, a shaming of Christ and it's done again. And that's possible. But I think the best option here as to what re-crucify means, it means getting unbackslidden again, would mean that Jesus would have to be crucified again. Each repentance from legalism requires another crucifixion. And the Hebrews were doing this, trying to renew these backslidden Christians to repentance. They were saying, you need to repent again. You need to repent again. And every time they say, you need to repent again because you've left your faith, you're going back into Judaism and, a, and, a, and a, going back into apostasy, so you need to repent again, else you might not be saved. And the author is saying they're already saved. They've already what's, It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. They're already saved. They've already repented. So here you are trying to get them saved again by repenting. So I think that's what the re-crucify. It's impossible to re-crucify Jesus. In other words, it's impossible for you to get saved again by, by accepting Jesus' crucifixion again. You're already saved. And ironically, option number three buttresses the reformed position that once you're saved, you're not going to lose it. 
it's impossible to restore the apostate again to repentance because once he's saved, he's already saved. He doesn't need to repent again. So option number three really is a reformed position. It's much better than reformed position number one that I just mentioned, my option number two. All right, so let's move on to the other words in this verse. Let's look at the word tasted. These people who have been enlightened, who were once enlightened, who tasted the heavenly gift. And in verse 5, they tasted God's good word and the powers of the coming age. So what does it mean to taste the heavenly gifts and taste of God's powers of the coming age? Well, the fact that they tasted, and of course the tasted probably refers to the six elementary principles. They just gotten started. The foundational principles, when you first eat food, what do you do? You taste it first and then you swallow it whole. So they had tasted, not in the sense of tasting it and spitting it out of their mouth, but tasting it and getting ready to swallow it. They were already saved. And they had tasted of the six elementary principles, which can be grouped as salvation, confirmation, and eternal destiny. First two foundational principles were repentance and faith. That, of course, refers to salvation. So the apostates here, the potential apostates, had been enlightened and tasted the heavenly gift. They were saved. And then they had tasted of baptism and laying on of hands, assuming that's Baptism and water and laying on of hands is of the Holy Spirit, which I tend to think it is. That would be what the high church brethren call confirmation, the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Since they had tasted of that, they were saved. And then going from being, they were, excuse me, they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. So they're saved and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the last two foundational principles, that last couplet of foundational principles, refers to the Christian's eternal destiny, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. Well, they had tasted of that because... They were now in such a situation that if they died, they would be resurrected from the dead. So they had tasted all these things because they were Christians. Option number three, the sprule option. They had tasted of the heavenly gift. The author doesn't explicitly say what it is. Here's some options. If it, Bruce says, is partaking of the Lord's Supper, maybe. Could refer to the tasting of the heavenly gift. Could refer to righteousness. Hebrews 5.13, now everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced with the message about righteousness because he is an infant. So you've tasted of righteousness, but you haven't eaten of righteousness, if you will. So tasting of the heavenly gift means just to dabble in the ideas about righteousness. He could refer to salvation rest. The believer has only tasted of salvation rest. Hebrews 4.1, therefore, while the promise to enter his rest remains, let us fear that none of you should miss it. The heavenly gift that this potential apostate might have tasted of could refer to salvation itself. Hebrews 2.3, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was first spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him. This great salvation could be what they've tasted of. Ephesians 2.8, for you were saved by grace through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is God's gift. That They could have tasted of salvation. They should have tasted of the heavenly gift, and the heavenly gift would be salvation. Or it could be Christ himself, you have tasted of Christ. It doesn't really matter. All of those are folded up into one idea. You haven't, you've tasted of the things of God. All right, so our verse here in Hebrews 6 says that these potential apostates have tasted the heavenly gift, or let's just say Christ, and things of Christ. They've tasted God's good word, all the good message about Christ, the gospel, and the powers of the coming age. Well, what are the powers of the coming age that these believing Christians have tasted of? Well, powers could refer to miracles, Hebrews 2, 4. At the same time, God also testified by signs and wonders, various miracles. Whenever you see the word power that's often associated with miracles, 
miracles of the coming age. Well, the coming age could either be the Messianic age, the New Testament church age between the first and second advents. That's a typical Jewish way of referring to the Messianic age. Of course, they didn't believe Jesus was the Messiah, but we do. So the coming age then would refer to the age of Christ between the first and second advents, the church age, if you will. Or it could mean the end of the world in heaven. I don't think it means that. I think it means the Messianic age. Hebrews was written before AD 70. And so the author is probably talking about what's happening after AD 70 and eight, when the Messiah is going to come and finish up his first return. He was crucified and resurrected in AD 30. He's going to come back and judge after one generation in AD 70. And so the powers of that age would be whatever powers the church would have with the Jews gone. And, of course, the powers that they would have during that age would be miracles, signposts to lead the sheep to God. Let me give you some quotes to back that up. Here's Adam Clark. The powers of the world to come may refer to the stupendous miracles wrought in confirmation of the gospel. The gospel dispensation being the world to come in the Jewish phraseology, as we often have seen. So the Jewish phraseology means the messianic age. So there was going to be miraculous powers being done. And, of course, that would extend all the way to today. But, unfortunately, cessationists believe that miracles have stopped and they're kind of putting a drag on things. Here's Jameson Fawcett and Brown's quotation. Quote, the world to come is the Christian dispensation, viewed especially in its future glories, though already begun in grace here. JFB kind of split the difference and say it's the Messianic age now and also what comes after later, which I would mean after the second coming. But anyway, they probably talking about all kinds of miracles, all kind of miraculous stuff going on in the Messianic age. Now, here's John Gill, who again sort of splits the difference. He says, meaning the ages to come means either the state of the church and the glorious things relating to it after the first resurrection, which they might have some notional apprehensions of, or the ultimate state of glory and happiness. So he goes from the first advent to the second advent. The powers of which are the immortality, incorruption, and glory of the body. Now, he says powers is not miracles so much as all kinds of other good stuff, like immortality, incorruption, and glory of the body, the perfect holiness and knowledge of the soul, entire freedom from all evils of every kind, full communion with the Father, Son, and Spirit, and a complete enjoyment of all happiness forever. Well, that's some good stuff that these people tasted of, and I'm telling you, I believe they were, they were saved and tasted of it. I don't know how you taste of all that stuff and not be saved. Now... I have already talked about those who have fallen away. Were there people who fell away into hell, lost the salvation? Option number one, Arminians, Reformed people, they've tasted, never got saved, and fallen away from all the things they tasted of. No, no, no. Or they were sincere Christians who were in danger of falling away into legalism. Well, let's assume option three and look at this phrase, falling away. is from the verb, Greek word, parapipto. And outside the New Testament, it usually meant to become lost. And that fits in pretty well with what the author's previous warnings were about drifting away. Apostasy was a slow process. To get lost, you're walking down the road, you think you know where you are, and now you take one wrong turn, another wrong turn, and all of a sudden this light bulb goes on. I am lost. I don't know where I am. Here's some scriptures showing this slow process of, of, of apostasy. Hebrews 2.1, we must therefore pay even more attention to what we have heard so that we will not drift away. Drifting is kind of a slow thing as the boat drifts away. Hebrews 2.3, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? You just don't pay attention to it. It doesn't happen all at once. You take your focus off of it and gradually drift away. Hebrews 3.12, watch out, brothers, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that departs from the living God. God doesn't sound like apostasy is a cataclysmic event where somebody says, I hate you, God, and walks away. That's not what was happening here. 
Hebrews 4.1, Therefore, while the promise to enter his rest remains, let us fear that none of you should miss it. Well, if you apostatize suddenly, you're going to, it's not just like you miss salvation, you're going to walk away from salvation in a big hurry. It's, that's not like missing the boat. Hebrews 4.11, Let us then make every effort to enter that rest so that no one will fall into the same pattern of disobedience. Falling into a pattern is just something that gradually happens and pretty soon you will be right back into legalism. Hebrews 6.12, so that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. Becoming lazy is how you apostatize, not by a sudden act of the will. I'm out of here, Jesus. I don't love you anymore, but you just gradually drift away. Here's a good quote from Steve Atkinson. Their problem seems not to have been a sudden absolute denial of the faith, but a disinterested, taken-for-granted attitude that leads to apostasy. Losing one's faith does not happen all at once. It happens very slowly over time. Doubt by doubt, trouble by trouble, it creeps into your heart. It is a rot from. That sounds like I didn't finish the quote. It is a rot from within, I guess is what he was trying to say there. All right, so this falling away is going into Judaism. It's not losing your salvation. And I'm going to finish up the discussion of verses 4, 5, and 6 with a quote from John Gill talking about falling away from communion with Christ. Not falling into hell, but just falling away from communion into Christ and embracing those mosaic, legalistic, or pharisaical principles. Here's what John Gill says, quote, Nor is it to be supposed to them that they may fall totally and finally. They may indeed fall not only into afflictions and temptations, but into sin and from a lively and comfortable exercise of grace and from a degree of steadfastness in the gospel, but not irrecoverably, for they are held and secured by a threefold, threefold cord, which can never be broken by God the Father, who has loved them with an everlasting love, has chosen them in Christ, secured them in the covenant of grace, keeps them by his power, has given them grace, and will give them glory. And by the Son, who has undertook for them, redeemed and purchased them, prays and makes preparations in heaven for them, they are built on him, united to him, and are his jewels, whom he will preserve. And by the Holy Ghost, whose grace is incorruptible, whose personal indwelling is forever, who himself is the earnest and seal of the heavenly inheritance, and who, having begun, will finish the good work of grace. In other words, folks, you ain't going to lose your salvation. You can get thrown into an awful lot of punishment, but if you hold fast to God, he's not going to let you go, and he's going to hold on to you with all the ways that Gil just mentions here, as he mentions the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, what all three persons of the Trinity have done for the humble believer. All right, having finished those difficult verses, 4, 5, and 6, we'll go to verses 7 and 8 of Hebrews 6. For ground that has drunk the rain that has fallen on it, and that produces vegetation useful to those it is cultivated for, receives a blessing from God. But if it produces thorns and thistles, it is worthless and about to be cursed and will be burned at the end. Now this ground resembles a person. Which person is it? Remember, option one, the Armenian, it's a person who believed in Christ and apostatized and is gone, going to hell now. Option number two, it's this is the typical reform position. It's a believer who has listened to the word and come close to the operations of the spirit, but then has refused to accept. Option number three, it's believing Christians who are getting ready to fall not into hell, but fall into the legalism of the Jewish religion. So what does this ground refer to? We see the ground has drunk rain, has produced vegetation, has produced fruit. And, of course, the vegetation refers to, to good works. But if it produces thorns and thistles, that's the opposite of good works, sin, bad works, if you will. And it's about to be cursed and be burned at the end. Now, the question is, 
What type of person is being recognized? Option one, two, or three. Well, let's look at option number one. The Arminian says this is an apostate that has drunk rain that has fallen on it, and he's produced vegetation, he's produced Christian fruit, and now he's thrown into hell. What's the problem with that view? Notice it's not the earth that is burned for ground or earth that has drunk the rain. Earth can't get burned. I mean, the earth itself can't get thrown into hell. It doesn't get burned. It's the fruit that's on the ground that gets burned. In other words, the works that's on the ground that gets burned. The earth itself can't burn. So if you're talking about ground standing for people who've lost their salvation, you've got a weak metaphor right there because ground ain't going to lose its being by being burnt. So that, I don't think option number one works. How about option number two? The ground refers to a non-Christian who hears the gospel but rejects it. problem with that is it says that this so-called non-Christian who rejects the gospel... He had rain falling on it. He had the gospel preached to him. But then that rain produces vegetation useful to those that it's cultivated for. And that ground, that non-Christian who had the rain of the gospel poured on him receives a blessing from God. Well, how is that possible if he never got saved? How does he produce useful vegetation, if veget useful works, if he never got saved? How does he receive a blessing from God if he never got saved, as the Reformed people say? Well... Here's a couple of Reformed counters to that problem. The author could be referring to what would have happened if the hearer accepted. For ground that has drunk the grain, if this, this believer who's participating in the Holy Spirit and partaking, tasting of the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, if that Christian had it accepted, he didn't, but if he had, he would have produced vegetation useful. And actually, that makes sense to me. I, mean, I don't think that's illogical. I don't think that's what he's saying, but it could, it, you know, it's not illogical. John Gill says that the author could be referring, the author of the book of Hebrews could be referring to two different types of people. People who accept the gospel produce useful vegetation. People who reject the gospel produce thorns and thistles. And But all of this is hypothetical. He's just trying to show that this is why these people ought to accept the gospel mentioned in verse 6. All right, well, I'll give them that. That's not totally unlikely to me. But let's look at option number three, which is... The apostates here, the ground, refers to backsliding Christians who are going back under the law. The metaphor of ground that has burnt thorns and thistles on that ground, it fits perfectly with a backslidden legalistic Christian. The backslider still exists as the ground still exists. He's still saved. But after the fire, all of his works are burnt up. Just like you look at ground that has all the grass burnt off of it, all the fruit, and it's black. It looks pretty bleak, but it's still there. So... I think that's what it's referring to. Now, interestingly enough, this option number three, talking about the ground that is about to be cursed and be burned up at the end, that could be referring to legalistic Christians who are thinking about apostatizing and going back into Judaism. You want to do that? Well, guess what? J Jerusalem is about to be cursed and about to be burned up. And you want to go back and do that? You want to produce some thorns and thistles and go back and get burned up in AD 70? Remember, the author of Hebrews wrote the book in the mid-60s. He knew that Jesus had said after one generation, not one generation would pass when that temple would be burnt and destroyed, not one stone on top of another. He knew that. He knew the Olivet Discourse. And so he's saying, why would you, apostate Christian, want to go back into Judaism when it's about to get burnt up? You're going to be cursed. You're going to be burnt up. And I think that's what he's really talking about. You'll be burnt up. You won't lose the salvation, but he sure will be unhappy after his old mother religion gets destroyed. I probably ought to go back here to option one and try to help the Arminians out a little bit. How can an apostate person 
who is once saved and then lost to salvation going to hell, how can he be burnt up? And we said, well, his thorns and thistles are going to be burnt up, but he can't be burnt up because the ground is not burnt up. Well, before I try to give him some help, let's give let's give him some more grief. The problems for Arminians, if it, and for option number one, if the ground actually goes to hell, what it, why is it about to be cursed? In other words, you Arminians say that these apostates have le- have left lost their salvation or going to hell. Why does it say about to be cursed? And we've been burned at the end, not now. Well, the Arminian can answer that and say, well, there's a time sequence here. The apostate produces thorns and thistles for a while, and then when God's patience runs out, the apostate goes to hell, and that's reasonable too, about to be cursed. I really don't think the about to be cursed is referring to 8070, about to come on to Hebrew Christians. Here's a quote from Adam Clark back in that sentiment up. Quote, it is acknowledged almost on all hands that this epistle was written before the, destru- the destruction of Jerusalem by the Romans. This verse is, in my opinion, a proof of it, and here I suppose the apostle refers to that approaching destruction, and perhaps he has this all along in view, but speaks of it covertly that he might not give offense. Well, I think that's what he was talking about. Now these about to apostatize into Judaism Christians, option number three Christians, they're about to be cursed and burned at the end. Again, let me repeat, that could mean he's about to be cursed and his works are all getting to be burned up because he's about to go into legalism just in general. But I think more specifically, he's about to go into the legalistic, Judaistic, apostate, rabbinic Judaism that's about to get destroyed in 8070. I think that's what he's really talking about. All right, we go to verse 9 in Hebrews 6. Even though we are speaking this way, dear friends, in your case, we are confident of the better things connected with salvation. Speaking this way, well, he's talking about judgment, isn't it? He's just giving them a ghastly warning about their works being burnt up, and that could be referring to the whole city being burnt up. And that's implicit all the way through Hebrews, that it's very, very bad to apostatize, apostatize and go back into Judaism. So even though I've been speaking all this way all along about the dangers of apostasy, dear friends, in your case, we are confident of better things connected with salvation. Well, you're not going to get burnt up. You're not going to get cursed. You're going to get saved because you're going to forget this legalistic apostasy idea and you're going to start assembling yourselves together as Christians and hold on through the tough times that are happening here in the 60s A.D. Dear friends, the KGV translates as beloved. Dear friends, whenever people chastise people in the New Testament, they always manage to slip in some good things about them. In Corinth, gosh, the Corinthians had all kinds of things going wrong. But Paul constantly called them brothers, holy brethren, saints. And here the author of Hebrews calls his addressees dear friends. And he says he's confident of them. When you chastise, you should always build up. Find something good to talk about when you are tearing somebody somebody's sins down. Hebrews 6.10, For God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you showed for him, for his name, when you serve the saints. And you continue to serve them. Again, more positive stuff. You're serving the saints. And God's not going to forget your work. Paul had written the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians 1, 3. We recall in the presence of our God and Father your work of faith, labor of love, and endurance of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Your work of faith, your labor of faith. That just shows that faith is not passive, folks. you got to work. You believe and then you work. You believe and you work. Nothing passive about it. This is a canard that is often thrown at New Covenant theology people who who, since we say we got, we can't rely on the works of Moses anymore to sanctify us. Oh, you're passive. Oh, you're quietest. You don't believe in working. You're lazy. No, we don't believe that. 
faith is accompanied with work. So God will not forget your work and the love you showed for his name when you serve the saints. When you serve the saints, you're loving God. As simple as that, because God loves the saints. So if you serve the saints, you're serving God who loves the saints. Here's some examples of service that the Hebrew Christians have done. Remember now, they're going through terrible persecution by the persecuting rabbinic apostate Jews. Hebrews 10, verses 32 through 34. Remember the earlier days when, after you had been enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. By the way, there's that word enlightened, fotizo, enlightened. And the Reformed position says, well, the light just shone on you, but you didn't accept it. No, here's where it's talking about people. You've been enlightened means you've been lit up with the gospel. You've been saved. When that happened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to taunts and afflictions, and at other times you were companions of those who were treated that way. For you sympathized with the prisoners and accepted with joy the confiscation of your possessions, knowing that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. Bruce Gore, the great Bible teacher, post-mill, preterist, Spokane, Washington, First Presbyterian Church, got great, he loves history, and he ties history in with the Gospels. You need to watch a lot of his videos. You need to stop listening to this audio and go get on YouTube and watch some of his videos. They're, they're very, very good. He made the point that in the early church, the early Jewish church before Acts 8, that the Christians were put out of the synagogues. And that was not just you couldn't worship in the synagogues. They were shut out from commerce. They couldn't be involved in commerce. Now, the Jews had a lot of commerce with the Roman Empire, of course. Remember in the book of Revelation... It mentions all the, I forgot what chapter it was, but it mentions all the incredible commerce that was going on between the Jews and the Romans. And, of course, all that was destroyed in eighty seventy when the city went down. But there was a lot of commerce, and when the Jews were shut out of the synagogues and they were not able to participate in that commerce with the Roman Empire, they became poor. Now, I know that a famine was part of the poverty, but there were two collections taken up for the poor Jewish Christians. And the first one was from Antioch. I think that was in the 40s. That was before the famine. And why were they poor? Remember the early church at Pentecost, they had to hold all things in common because they didn't have any way to work. They were shut out. And plus, a lot of them were pilgrims from outside. So anyway, they were shut out from commerce, put out of the synagogue, and they suffered, as Hebrews 10 says. But they served the saints by helping each other during that time of struggle. So even though the Hebrews are in danger of apostatizing, we've got to remember they did a lot of good works and they went through a lot of struggles that we, most of us, have not gone through. So we need to be careful about pointing our finger at them. So Paul is giving them credit for their service while delicately hinting at the need of perseverance. A lack of such perseverance had probably somewhat began to show itself, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown said. They were getting weary. They were getting worn out. I don't know how in the world they understood the persecution they did. I can't, I can't stand the fact that my darn tractor keeps breaking down about drives me crazy. But man, these people had something really worth worrying about. Hebrews 6.11, Now we want each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the final realization of your hope. As Steve Atkinson says, if the Hebrews weren't bearing fruit, they had no proof that they were actually saved. And so the author says, want you to demonstrate it. Show that you're saved. Show that you're not going back under legalism. We want each of you to demonstrate the same diligence for the final realization of your hope. That word diligent, spude, is the Greek means zeal, serious intention or purpose, depth of sincerity of feeling. Diligence for what? For the final realization of their hope. The NIV has to the very end. Your hope to the very end. The whole purpose of the book of Hebrews is to keep them from backsliding into Judaism. The author did not want them to start out as Christians and end up as Jews. 
So he wants them to persevere to the very end. Now, some of those, if they didn't persevere, what does that mean? It doesn't mean that they lost their salvation. It means that the faith that fizzles before the finish had a flaw from the first. In other words, they weren't saved to begin with. Now, this idea of perseverance is mentioned in Hebrews 3, in two places, Hebrews 3, 6, but Christ was faithful as a son over his household, and we are that household if we hold on to the courage and the confidence of our hope. And if you don't hold on to the courage and confidence of your hope, that means that you didn't have salvation, the courage of salvation and the confidence of salvation from the very beginning. Hebrews 3.14, for we have become companions of the Messiah, if we hold firmly until the end. In other words, once you see yourself persevering to the end, you'll know that you are companions of the Messiah. It's so easy to read that. Well, I might hold on, I might not. That's not what the author meant. He, he, he meant to say, you're going to hold on, and when you do, that will demonstrate that you're companions of the Messiah. Hold on to the end, what does that mean? Well, to the coming of Christ, Jameson Foster Brown suggests, I would suggest that it's rather to the end of the persecution from the Jews, at which time the Hebrews would be established. They're free from backsliding, free from danger of falling into apostasy with the Jewish religion. And that would, of course, occur in AD 70 when Judaism was destroyed. Hold on just a few more years. For the final or to the end realization of your hope, hope it is a confident expectation of the future. Here's a verse that talks about hope in Hebrews 10:36. For you need endurance, so that after you have done God's will, you may receive what you promised, that you may receive what was promised. So you want salvation from the persecution. Hold on to the end of the Jewish order, and you'll make it. Hebrews 6:12. So that you won't become lazy, but will be imitators of those who inherit the promises through faith and perseverance. Lazy is sluggish, slothful, dull. Don't be like that. Don't be that kind of a Christian. Hebrews 5.11, we have a great deal to say about this, and it's difficult to explain since you have become too lazy to understand. At ease in Zion, except it wasn't a place to be at ease at because they were being crucified, they were being persecuted. So, But they had become lazy in fighting the persecution or enduring that persecution. Well, actually, he didn't say they had become that way. He says that there's a possibility that they might come out that become that way and don't do that but rather be imitators of those who inherit the promise. That word imitate shows up a lot. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, imitate those who inherit the promises. Who are those who inherit the promises? What promises are we talking about? Well, here are some options. It could be uh, a reference to various Old Testament people who had obtained something God had promised. And, of course, these are Hebrews, so they'd be familiar with the Old Testament. So, Imitate those who inherited the promises through faith and perseverance in the Old Testament. For example, Abraham should have a numerous seed by faith as well as by natural descent. That was Old Testament. All of these are from Adam Clark. That God would be a God to him, to Abraham, and to his seed in their generations by being the subject of their worship and their protector. Faith and endurance. God Abraham that. Faith and perseverance that he should give them the possession of Canaan. Abraham persevered. He ended up, his descendants at least, got all of Canaan. Abraham persevered through faith and perseverance. He blessed all the nations of the earth, just like God promised. Through faith and perseverance, Abraham would bless the nations through Christ, Abraham's seed. Through faith and perseverance, Abraham, through Christ, would bless the nations with the gospel revelation. So basically, those are the three promises of Abraham, land, offspring, and blessing that were applied through Christ to the church in the New Testament. Be imitators of these people. Now, of course, well, the Hebrews could have known about the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises in the New Testament. They certainly knew about the Jewish story. 
because they were Hebrew Christians, about how Abraham persevered and inherited all kind of stuff. So the author has given them a role model. Imitate your Jewish forefathers. They inherited the promises. You can too if you just hold on, endure. Now, of course, these Old Testament prophecies, well, it could refer to Old Testament promises fulfilled through faith and perseverance, but it also could refer to Christians who accepted Christ's grace and salvation, as I just mentioned. John Gill prefers that option. But whatever option it were, if... if well, if it was Old Testament promises that were being obtained through faith and perseverance, they weren't perfect promises because we read in Hebrews 11:13, these all died, these are the heroes of faith, died in faith without having received the promises, but saw them from a distance, greeted them, and confessed that they were foreigners and temporary residents on the earth. So those earthly promises weren't the ultimate promises. The ultimate fulfillment of those promises were spiritual promises in the church. Hebrews 11:39 through 40, all these were approved through their faith, but they did not receive what was promised. They didn't get it. The earthly promises, since God had provided something better for us. That's the earthly fulfillment. Excuse me, the spiritual fulfillments of these promises. God had provided something better for us so that they would not be made perfect without us. So the promises are ultimately fulfilled in us, the church. Ladies and gentlemen, we have finished with this bodacious exhortation not to apostatize and become a legalistic member of the Jewish religion anymore. We will continue with chapter 6 in our next audio. In chapter 6, we'll finish up with this idea of inheriting the promise. And as the author talks more specifically about the promise made to Abraham, I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoyed this one.